Rise and shine, liberty-loving patriots. Welcome to the Chris Ann Hall Daily Journal. Chris Ann Hall here, K-R-I-S-A-N-N-E-H-A-L-L.com, where we are liberty over security, principle over party, and truth over your favorite personality. Thank you for joining me here today. I'm so happy to have you all here with me. I can I I'm just want to take a second and say hello to everybody. We got Indiana. Hello to South Haven, Mississippi. Coeur d'Alene. It's been a while since we've been to Coeur d'Alene. Welcome to the Chris Ann Hall Show, Coeur d'Alene. I see my Kansas people in the house. Thank you so much. Glad to have everybody here with us. Who do we have in our Facebook chat room? Kansas again. Here we go. Uh, Suffolk County, New York. Thank you for saying New York because, you know, there's a Suffolk uh, County, Virginia, too. Uh, New California State. Yes. Nevada County, California, Las Vegas. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. Morgantown, Kentucky, Milan, Ohio, Montana, Oklahoma. Oh, yeah. We're going to discuss, Hernandez, the Oklahoma opinion. Remember, the Supreme Court does not issue rulings. They issue opinions. Kings issue opinions. Uh, we have a Supreme Court that issue, or kings issue rulings, sorry. We have a Supreme Court that issues opinions because they are not kings. People's Republic of California, <laughs> Rhode Island, v uh, Villa Ridge, Missouri, Lone Star State. Yes, more Texas people, New Jersey, Zephyr Hills, Florida. All right, everybody. And, and I'm seeing a whole bunch more people come in to the chat room here at YouTube as well. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Lots of Texas people, lots of uh, live free or die grannies in the house make sure you hit that thumbs up but also hit that subscribe button if you're in our youtube channel so you don't miss any of the notices so here are the things that we're going to talk about today we're going to talk about three supreme court cases uh, we're going to talk about let me see if i can put them up here for you oh i forgot to make them bigger let's let's do that okay uh, right. There we go. Here we go. So, McGirt v. Oklahoma. This is the case about the Oklahoma Territory that was in a treaty given to the Creek Nation. And the Supreme Court uh, has said that, you know what, if you give somebody a... If you give somebody land in a treaty, you can't take it back later. But it's a little bit more complicated than that, so we'll get into that. We're also going to get into the two Trump tax uh, return cases. So you have Trump et al. v. Mazars, which has to do with Congress subpoenaing infer uh, financial records of the president, the specifically the House Committee on Financial Services, and then also uh, Trump v. Vance, District Attorney of New York, and this has to do with a prosecutor subpoenaing records from the president. Now, what I find, there's two things, and I just have to say this. I know I've said this before, but there are two things that I find incredibly frustrating with the way media, pundits, politicians... They refer to Supreme Court opinions as, as if it's the court has to choose Trump or to vote against Trump. And in the Creek Nation, they have to side with the Indians or not side with the Indians. How about we just look at the Constitution as a standard and we say the Supreme Court voted consistent with the Constitution, or the Supreme Court voted inconsistently with the Constitution. See, those are the words that we should be seeing in headlines. Those are the words that we should be hearing from our politicians and our pundits. These are the words that should be coming out of our mouths. Because the only standard that ought to be relevant, the only standard that is worth anything, is the Constitution. Now, when you go to my classes at libertyfirstuniversity.com, 
you get to see how the courts are bound by the Constitution. You get to see that the courts and the judges must recognize that the authority of the Constitution predominates and anything that they do beyond the authority of the Constitution is null and void. We have a judiciary class that teaches all about that. And it's something that we have to get into our heads. So when we get used to seeing these things and we get used to speaking this way, the Supreme Court sided with Trump or the Supreme Court uh, went against Trump or the Supreme Court took this side or the other side. I believe we actually encourage, if not create, activist judges with that kind of language. Activist judges who think that they have to get public approval, right? Public approval, because that's what the headlines are saying. Activist judges that think their job is to pick sides. No. Your job is to look at the Constitution as a standard and compare what the government is doing to the Constitution. And so that's what we do here. So let me just start off with a legal disclaimer. The opinions that you are about to hear today are those that are formulated through fact, history, and experience based on the Constitution as a standard, which means if my opinions seem to contradict those of the President of the United States or those of some judge, it's not because I'm against the President of the United States or I'm against a judge. It's because the President of the United States has taken a position that is contrary to the Constitution or a particular judge or justice has taken a position contrary to the Constitution. So let's keep that in mind. So if you're popping in here and you've, you've never heard Chris Ann Hall before, you've never been to our show before, and you hear me talking about this, just remember that. Before you start typing in the chat room about how I'm a never-Trumper or how I'm a Trump sycophant or even I'm a liberal, I don't know, whatever. I am none of those things. I am a constitutionalist. I am a hard core constitutionalist dedicated to the principles and understanding that the real standard is the Constitution, the only standard, okay? So that aside, let's talk about the Oklahoma case first. Now, what happened is we have seven to two. The seven to two, and let me pull this down here, that formed the majority opinion is Gorsuch, who wrote the opinion, Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. Okay? Roberts, I said 72, right, didn't I? This one's 5 to 4. The other ones are 72. 5 to 4. Roberts, Alito, Kavanaugh, and Thomas write the dissent. Now, you know, those of you who are longtime listeners, you know that when I study a Supreme Court opinion, I always go to the dissent first, and I roll back and read this. But today, we're going to do something a little bit different, because I want to present to you the facts of this case before you actually hear the dissent, because this case is the great sleeper of 2020. This case will have deeper and more long-standing effects than any other case that we've heard so far this year. 
this case is going to change or has the potential to change a lot of things. Now, I'll just tell you straight up, there are many in the conservative movement who are not going to agree with me on this one. But remember, my position is constitutional, my position is legal, my position is liberty, okay? It is not lawlessness, it's not politics, it's not, uh, certainly not based on some ideology of we've been doing this for a hundred years, so it must be right. And that's basically the argument of the dissent. We've been doing the wrong thing now for a hundred years, so it must be the right thing, okay? So I believe the facts, the Constitution, and the history show that the majority of, of the majority court in McGirt v. Oklahoma got it right. There we go. That's probably better, isn't it? You guys can see that better. Okay. Now, here's the facts. Because the dissent tries to interject the emotional aspect so that you will be ruled by the emotional aspect. Now, we're going to get to the emotional aspect, but I want to establish the facts first, okay? In a treaty with the Creek Nation in 1833, the treaty says that the Creek Nation was going to have a permanent home to the Creek Nation of the Indians, okay? Now look, they grant a patent in fee simple to the Creek Nation of the Indians for the assigned land, okay? To exist, to continue, so long as they shall exist as a nation and continue to occupy the country hereby, the, yeah, the country hereby assigned to them. Now, the treaty gives them fee simple. Now, that's legal language. So I'm going to read to you what fee simple means. Transferring a title via fee simple. Okay. If the grantor transfers his entire ownership interest in the land, the buyer becomes the new fee simple owner. The deed may include words such as fee simple ownership or fee simple absolute which indicates that the grantor has absolute ownership interest in the land okay so what has happened now is fee simple is a form of freehold ownership it's a way that real estate and land may be owned in common law countries and it is the highest possible ownership that can be held in real property. If you are a fee simple owner, you have absolute authority and ownership of that property. Now, the rights of fee simple owner are limited by government powers of taxation, police power, and some other things. But a fee simple title means you own that property, nobody else owns it. Now, the government that you live in can tax you. The government that you live in can issue laws and make you subject to those laws. But the property ownership in that is completely yours. And that's what we did in the Treaty of 1833 with the Creek Nation. Now, the long history is, is that we, we sort of chased them across the, the, the territories and said, okay, we're not going to move you anymore. We're going to give you this property as a treaty with a foreign nation because, remember, the Indian nations are, uh, they are sovereign, independent nations. It's like having France sitting in the middle of Oklahoma. They are a sovereign country. So what we said to the sovereign people of the Creek Nation, we're not going to chase you around anymore. We're going to give you this part of our territory as compensation for moving you. 
We're going to give you this land in fee simple. You're the only owner forever. As long as you remain a nation, which is kind of wrong about the fee simple thing as well. But it also says, uh, let's see. In addition, an 1856 treaty promised that no portion of the creek lands, quote, would ever be embraced or included within or annexed to any territory or state, and that the creeks would have unrestricted right of self-government. Okay, see, this is, this is your reassurance that they are sovereign. Okay? They'll never be included with the United with any territory in the United States again. They will never be subject to any other government, just self-government, with full jurisdiction over enrolled tribe members and their property. Now, I don't know what language we could have used to make this more clear okay so here's here's the question i got in the chat room janet says so the indians won't pay taxes yes that the indians on the reservation okay would pay taxes according to their government not federal taxes not income taxes and not taxes to the state they are subject to taxation be by their own government because they are sovereign now, if someone who is a U.S. citizen, an Oklahoma citizen, lives within the foreign country of the Creek Nation, they can be taxed by the state of Oklahoma. They can be taxed by the federal government. If they are citizens and uh, citizens of Oklahoma, citizens of, of the United States, and they live in the Cree Nation, then our federal government can go in and income tax them. I mean, under these laws, right? We all know that the federal income tax is not lawful anyway, but that's right, okay? If there is a legal dispute between U.S. citizens and members of the Cree Nation, then the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court and the federal court is invoked. Here's where the emotional part comes in. How did this case come about? The case came about because this citizen of the Creek Nation, not a U.S. citizen, not a citizen of, of Oklahoma, but a citizen of the Creek Nation was convicted by Oklahoma uh, for three serious sexual offenses on, on, a, on a minor, on a little bitty minor. Okay, And the appeal came because the member of the Creek Nation, the, the, the man who was found, who was prosecuted by the state of Oklahoma said, wait a minute, this happened on Creek Nation property. I'm a Creek Nation citizen and the victim was also Creek. You don't have jurisdiction Oklahoma. And that has to be right. That has to be right. It is enormously inconvenient now. It is tremendously confusing. But it's right. You can't, the United States cannot assert the right to prosecute someone in France when a French citizen commits a crime against another French citizen in France. And that's what's happened here. So number one, it's theirs. And it's been theirs since 1833. And we've also promised, since what year was that? Pull that up again. Since 18... Oh, I lost that year. Since uh, 18... 52, the, the formally issued patent was there. 
And then again, we promised in 1856 that they would have unrestricted right of self-government, full jurisdiction uh, over members of the tribe and their property. That law, that treaty, because treaty becomes law, that foreign treaty, that foreign law, has been in effect for 170 plus years. Was that 170 what? I don't know. Do your math. That's, that's crazy. How, why is this even a problem? Well, it's a problem because, as the dissent points out, we have been ignoring the treaty for forever. Let's see, is this... We have been ignoring. We have not been honoring our treaty, and we have not been operating according to our legal obligation to the Creek Nation since the Civil War. So here is the dissent from Roberts, Alito, Kavanaugh, and Thomas. Roberts is writing. Now I want you to notice this is this is this is an emotional tactic used by people who don't have the facts to help them. When we're in the courtroom, we say, uh, if the law is in your favor, argue the law. If the law is not in your favor, then you argue a motion. And we ought to know right off the bat that the law is not in their favor because they lead off with the emotional plea, right? This guy is a child molester who was sentenced to a thousand years plus life in prison. So why wouldn't we want to prosecute him? Well, we wouldn't want to prosecute him because we don't have jurisdiction over that. Period. It's not our business. Okay? So what happens now is because since the Civil War, we've been operating under the premise that the federal government can renege on their promises and their treaties without... With, with impunity. So we're talking about a huge portion of Oklahoma now that the court recognizes via treaty belongs to the Creek Nation. We're talking about a portion of Tulsa. So the court says, Congress disestablished any reservation in a series of statutes leading up to the Oklahoma statehood at the turn of the 19th century. Maybe I should start at the beginning of this paragraph for you so you can read this. He says, none of this is warranted. He, he goes out, lines out all the confusion that's there. Now we've got this huge portion of a state that, that the Supreme Court has said now belongs to a foreign sovereign country. Uh, we don't even have to go look at all this stuff that's happening. He says, now all of a sudden, all these people that are convicted are going to have an argument to say that they don't need, that their conviction should be overturned. There's going to be confusion in enforcing laws. Oklahoma can't impose taxes on these people. I mean, there's a lot of things that are going to have to change based on this. But he says, none of this is warranted. What has gone unquestioned for a century remains true today. Let me read that to you again. What has gone unquestioned for a century remains true today. That a huge portion of Oklahoma is not Creek Indian Reservation. Congress disestablished any reservation in a series of statutes leading up to the Oklahoma statehood at the turn of the 19th century. Are you catching that? Robert's argument is literally, well, we've been violating this treaty for a hundred years, so it must be okay. We've repeated this lie over and over again 
for a hundred years. So it must be okay. So does that mean I can go to Robert's house and I can steal his car and I can drive it around for a few weeks and if he doesn't say anything about it, it's now my car. And even if he says something about it a little bit later, it doesn't matter. I've already been driving it. And since I've been driving it, it must be okay. I don't, I cannot wrap, I seriously cannot wrap my brain around this. This is, this is judicial activism. Absolutely judicial activism. Yes, this is terrible facts. Terrible facts. Terrible facts because the guy is a horrible person. Terrible facts because we now have Oklahoma who has been in good faith following the federal government's cues when the federal government was violating a treaty. Can I just explain to you that Congress cannot change a treaty with statutes? I mean, I, I don't know if I should have to say that out loud. But Congress cannot change treaties with statutes. I can't even imagine the international law suits that if Congress started doing that with France or Great Britain or China or somebody we've got a treaty with. Treaties have to be renegotiated. They're contracts. A treaty is a contract with a foreign nation. You can't just arbitrarily decide not to live up to your end of the contract. You can't start making rules contrary to the contract and say, oh, well, you know, we decided these rules are, are, are better for us, so we're going to follow these, and if you don't like it, too bad. No, it's called breach of contract. The problem is, is that the U.S. government has had a habit for over 100 years of breaching contracts with the sovereign Indian nations, and now we are 100 years into this, and, and, and now we got to figure out how to fix it. And Roberts is saying, no, we don't have to fix it. We just keep violating the contract. Do you know what happens when you violate a contract? When the contract is breached, we're the breaching party. We're the breaching party. Which means the Creek Nation doesn't have to live up to their end of the contract because we're breaching it. Any demands that we made on the Creek Nation as terms of our contract are, are null and void when we breach the contract with them. That's how it works. And one time, our Supreme Court of the United States finally recognizes that we have an obligation to keep our contractual agreements with foreign countries. Now, like I said, this is going to rub somebody the wrong way. I'm not saying that this is going to be the easy decision. I'm not going to say this is going to be an easy fix. But the bottom line is, it's the only right decision. We gave it to them as compensation in fee simple forever. And then made a secondary promise 23 years later and said, hey, just to reinforce what we gave you, we promise that we will never take it back. You have, oh, I had a picture up here. Let me see if I can pull that picture up again. I'll have to go back to my history and, and see. Uh, is this it? Yeah. No, nope, that's not it. Well, I had a picture up of the um, of the land that was the creek that was how the territory of Oklahoma was occupied by Native Americans. Uh, little map that broke it all down, and I 
for some reason Google closed it for me. I'm sure I probably closed it myself, right? But uh, we, uh, I don't have that map. Maybe I'll find it for you later. But anyway, I wanted to show you this part as we finish up this because I'm going to spend the, the last half of the show today talking about the two Trump Supreme Court, uh, the two Trump tax case, tax records cases. And I wanted you to see this ridiculous argument from the dissent, and I wanted you to know the law. And I think it's important that you have this discussion, number one, because this is gonna this is gonna be huge. This is a precedent for the rest of the sovereign Indian nations to require uh, the, the the U.S. to honor their treaties. There have been lawsuits for a really long time to force the U.S. to live up to their treated obligations, and this is going to do that. You're going to have to see now. I I, I don't doubt that the Oklahoma can make some kind of agreement with the Indian, uh, with the Creek Nation, or with other nations that are within the state of Oklahoma. I mean, they're going to have to sit down and negotiate something. They're going to have to work it out. Uh, if we want to be constitutional about it, this is something that would probably have to actually be negotiated by the president because states are not allowed to make treaties with foreign governments. So the Constitution declares that states cannot make treaties with foreign nations. So to say that Oklahoma has to fix this is unconstitutional. The President of the United States, this is one time where the President of the United States is going to have to get involved. It's his job to negotiate treaties. 98% of the stuff he's doing ain't his job. This is actually his job. He needs to sit down across the table with the people of the Cree Nation, of the Creek Nation, and, and I could see, you know, a big table with, with the leaders of the Creek Nation on one side and the leaders of Oklahoma on the other side and the president there trying to negotiate a treaty. And then we negotiate the treaty, it goes before the Senate, then the Senate votes to ratify, and then there you have it. But this is how it should have happened a long time ago. Not Congress saying, okay, it's our land, and now that it's our land, we're going to turn it into a state. I want you to realize the timeline here. We gave them this in 1833. We reinforced, with stronger language, their ownership of it in 1856. And then formed the state of Oklahoma through a series of congressional statutes that said oh we didn't actually mean to give you that we're going to actually keep it and now we're going to call it the state of Oklahoma doing exactly what they promised not to do so I don't know it's crazy it's crazy this language let me read this to you in, in Roberts this is a terrible history of America. It really is. If we deny what we did, then then we're we are part of the problem. Roberts writes, the Creek Nation one, once occupied what is now Alabama and Georgia. In 1832, the Creek were now these are his words. The Creek were compelled to cede these lands to the United States in exchange for land in present day Oklahoma. Catch that language. They were compelled to cede in exchange. Can somebody out there in the internet world please translate that compelled to cede? That means we forced them to leave their land and said, okay, you can have in, in exchange for us forcing you to leave this land that we now want to call Alabama and be part of the United States, we're going to chase this foreign nation off their land. In exchange for us forcing you off your land, we will give you this land in as, as compensation. But wait a minute. 
60 years later, we're going to say, our bad. We're taking it back. And Roberts, Roberts thinks that's okay. And Roberts and Kavanaugh and Alito all think that's okay. And Thomas, no, it's not. It's not okay. We must follow treaty. We must honor our treaties. We, we have to be a people that honor our treaties. So let's move on to the Trump tax records cases. So we have two cases that deal with the same topic, but with different plaintiffs. And the Supreme Court, once again, gets them both right. I'm just crazy here. I'm actually losing count of the number of Supreme Court cases that the Supreme Court majority has opined correctly. This has got to set some kind of constitutional record. Okay? Some kind of constitutional record. This is something that, that we cannot, cannot let go by without acknowledging. So, you have Trump v. Mazars. Now, this is the case where Trump is challenging the U.S. House of Representatives in the House Committee on Finance Services issued four subpoenas to the Deutsche Bank seeking any document related to account activity, due diligence, foreign transactions, business statements, debt schedules, statements of net worth, tax returns, and, quote, suspicious activity identified by Deutsche Bank. I have a problem with banks defining what suspicious activity is. That's not the role of the bank, okay? That's the role of the government. But nonetheless, what we have, the, key, the crux issue here is can constitutionally, can the House Committee on Finance Services subpoena Donald Trump's record, financial records? And the answer to that question which the Supreme Court gets right, is no, they cannot. Now, what's interesting is this one is actually a 7-2 opinion. So Roberts, Ginsburg, Sotomayor, Kagan, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh. But did I guess Roberts, Ginsburg, Breyer. I always miss Breyer. I have like this mental perception filter to Breyer's name. I don't get how that works. But we have Roberts, Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh all saying, no, Congress cannot subpoena financial records on the president unless it's through impeachment process. Okay? That's it. Just through impeachment process. Because in order for Congress to issue a subpoena to gather information, it must be either, uh, in general, it must be relevant to a legislative process. They're not asserting that they're trying to gather information to write a law. No, that's not why they're subpoenaing his records. Therefore, the only argument they can make is that they're trying to investigate the president. They don't have investigatory authority over the president unless they file articles of impeachment. So they file the articles of impeachment, then they can subpoena the records. The subpoena must come through impeachment if it's coming from Congress. And, and it's just very, very simple. Now, Thomas and Alito filed a dissenting opinion. But what's kind of interesting here is that they're not arguing that the that Congress can 
subpoena Trump's records. No, no, no. They totally agree with the majority of court that the only way Congress can subpoena the president's records is through impeachment. They, they just don't like how the majority opinion was written, basically. They want to limit Congress even more. Which I think is probably beyond the four corners of the suit anyway. Okay? So, here we have, in all practical sense, a unanimous decision that Congress cannot subpoena the president's records unless it's under the issue of impeachment. And, you know, they cite the very obvious separation of powers is the the leading argument as to why that can't happen. If Congress can just simply subpoena the president's records for whatever they want, then you, you are violating separation of powers because now Congress can, you know, be weaponized by political forces as if they already are not to harass the president through his entire term. Now, I know we're already seeing that, but at least the Supreme Court is starting to stand up for the separation of powers issue and say, your subpoenas are no good. They're just no good. Okay, so the next case, and our final case today, is Trump v. Vance, District Attorney of the, of the County of New York. And the question at hand here is, can a prosecutor subpoena president's financial records based on a criminal investigation? And once again, we have... I think it's, let me look at this real quick. I think it's the same seven to two. Yep, the same seven to two. Roberts, Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan, uh, Kavanaugh, and Gorsuch all agree that the right answer is yes. A state prosecutor can subpoena the president's records as a uh, in, in, in the process of an inv- criminal investigation on the president. Thomas and Alito file a dissent, but once again, they don't actually disagree with the majority court. They disagree with how the majority court wrote the opinion. So I don't get why they call it a dissent. It's, I mean, it really is an dissent. What they dissented was, The majority court said, we say that a state prosecutor can investigate the president and can subpoena records based on an investigation. So we're going to remand this back to the lower courts for proper consideration. And Justice and Alito, or Justice Thomas and Alito say, we would just simply decline it. No remanding. We would just overturn it and it would be dead. So there was the, that's the dissent. The argument that was made by the president in this case was that the president of the United States has ultimate immunity from investigation and prosecution while he's sitting as president. There is absolutely nothing in the Constitution that says that. Nothing at all. Now, the Constitution does say that Congress cannot be, uh, a congressman cannot be taken off the House floor, uh, cannot be arrested from the House floor while they're arguing. They can't be prosecuted for things that they say in debate on the House floor. So what they do on the House floor in argument cannot be criminally taken against them. And what they do uh, uh, and they can't be arrested while they're in argument on the House floor. So there is a protection, not necessarily immunity, but a protection for congressmen written into the Constitution. But there is no such protection for the president. And that was not by accident. That was intentional. Remember, go to libertyfirstuniversity.com, take the course 
on the power of the president and understand the power of the president and why the power of the president was so enormously limited to keep him from becoming a king. One of the quickest ways to get a king is to create an immunity for their actions. We don't want presidents that can run around and do whatever they want without criminal consequences. So Donald Trump's attorneys argued that the president has complete immunity from state prosecutors who are prosecuting him for a crime. We can't have it that way. It's not written that way. And, it, and, and we can't establish that kind of immunity for the president of the United States. We can't. So we have to allow the president of the United States to be subject to criminal investigations on the state level. I say on the federal level, too. Now, what's the problem here? The problem is not the fact that the president does not have immunity. The problem is not that a prosecutor is, uh, can subpoena his records. The problem is that our prosecutors have become weaponized by political factions so that they will file frivolous criminal charges so they can subpoena records on behalf of the political faction and then leak them to the public, things that would not otherwise be open to the public, with impunity. So that's the problem. Period. Because prosecutors are not held accountable for frivolous prosecution. Bottom line. They're not. And because they're not, they have become weaponized political tools to do the job of political parties and politicians instead of being the, 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 the stewards of justice and liberty. We trusted them with that. Prosecutors are elected officials. They have a trust. And yet, here we are. We've allowed them to violate that trust with no consequences. So I realize, and I'm watching the chat room here a little bit, realizing that the today's show is controversial sparked a lot of conversation, evoked a lot of emotion. But you know, the bottom line is the Constitution is in writing because we are emotional people. It's in writing to create a standard so that we are not ruled and reigned by emotions, bias, prejudice, fear, desires, whatever the controlling whim of the day is. So this case about the Creek Nation, it can't be how you feel about it. It can't be how we've lived for the last hundred years. It has to be what is constitutional and what is legal. And the unfortunate truth, the unfortunate truth is that the U.S. government on the federal level has not only been operating unlawfully and unconstitutionally to their own people, but have been operating unlawfully and unconstitutionally to peoples of foreign nations via treaties by violating their promises. So, I just want to encourage you, I just want to encourage you to seek out the facts and the standards it's okay to be emotional and passionate. But when it comes to things like the Constitution and the law, we must follow the standard. 
and the treaty with the Creek Nation followed the standard when it was created. You can't violate the standard to change it. This is not about Trump. It's about the Constitution. So let's, let's figure it out. Let's talk about it. Let's read the standard, the Constitution. Read what the founders wrote about why they did what they did. So we can get it right. Not political, not emotional, but constitutional. Liberty over security, principle over party, and truth over your favorite personality. Don't forget, go to GodGunsLiberty.com. You can get, I love this Liberty First University mug. This has got to be one of my favorites. And pick up your mugs. Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. This is the one that I have. I mean, I'm obviously going to build up the whole collection. They're my, they're my mugs, but there you have it. I stand for the flag. I kneel for the king of kings. Peaceful non-compliance. Right there. All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining me today. God bless you. And man, these are crazy times. The times that try men's souls. For sure. The time the, the, the times that try men's souls. So uh, the mug, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Uh, oh, obedience to liberty. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty good. Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to liberty. I'll, I'll make that suggestion to JC. Don't forget to give us a thumbs up before you leave. Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube so that you don't miss the next show. Uh, thank you guys for joining me. Thank you for your words of encouragement. Thank you everybody at Facebook that's watching us now too. Make sure you give us your like and your share on Facebook and help us overturn the AI discrimination. God bless you guys. See you tomorrow.